Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Are you tired of sifting through YouTube to prepare for cases? Prepare for the OR with Jomi, a surgical video journal dedicated masterclasses in surgery. Use the promo code BTK to get 10% off your subscription. Watch and learn on Jomi.com, the leader in surgical education videos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first Behind the Knife Surgical Education episode brought to you by the Collaboration of Surgical Education Fellows, or COSA. I'm Ananya Anand and I am a general surgery resident at Stanford University, currently spending my professional development time as one of Stanford's surgical education fellows. I'm in the second and final year of my fellowship, after which I'll return back to residency. And I'm also pursuing a master's in health professions education at the University of Illinois, Chicago. My research interests are in wellness, professional identity formation, and improving feedback for surgical residents. Hey everyone, I'm Joe LeVoulier. I am a general surgery resident at the University at Buffalo. I am in my academic development time away from the hospital. I'm doing two things. Number one, I'm pursuing my master's in education uh, from the MGH Institute for Health Professions Education. And number two, I'm a research fellow working on an ECRIP grant from the New York State Department of Health studying trauma outcomes and, of course, surgical education. I'm super excited to be here. I've always been told that I have a face for radio. You totally do, Joe. And hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca. I'm a general surgery resident at LSU in New Orleans, currently in my second year of surgical education research at the University of Michigan. Also getting an MHPE, Master's in Health Professions Education, at the University of Michigan. My research is mainly around trainee assessment and the transition toward competency-based training models. We will be the three consistent hosts for the six COSEF Surgical Education podcasts over the next two years. And we'll certainly be bringing in some other friends for future podcasts as well. But before we get too far into the episode, Ananya, could you share with our listeners a little bit more about COSEF? Absolutely. So COSEF is a multi-institutional organization of surgical education research fellows, all working together to foster peer mentorship, networking, and scholarly collaboration. We meet every two weeks to discuss ongoing research efforts by individuals or by smaller groups within COSEF. So if you're a surgical education fellow or a surgery resident interested in education, and you're interested in joining COSEF or learning more, please email us at cosefconnect at gmail.com. That's C-O-S-E-F connect at gmail.com. Thanks, Ananya. And the group was originally founded in 2021, and we published an article about the mission and role in surgical education training in the journal uh, Global Surgical Education. This year, we're excited about our new partnership with the Association for Surgical Education, which will no doubt increase trainee involvement in the organization. Big shout out to the ASC Executive Board for helping us make that happen. All right, guys, enough with the promos, (laughs) but let's get into this week's episode. Awesome. So there's been an increasing interest in the transition to residency, which is the educational turning point from medical school to residency. And as a result, many medical schools have implemented transition to residency courses to provide critical information, training, and preparation prior to starting residency training. 
Um, and many residency boot camp uh, residency programs have uh, resident boot camps or intern boot camps to have residents learn and practice critical skills before beginning their intern year. Yet, despite the resources dedicated to the transition to residency, there are still gaps identified in the readiness of new residents. Studies examining the perspectives of program directors, as well as medical school graduates, have found that new interns struggle predominantly with non-technical or non-clinical skills, skills like self-reflection, organizational skills, professionalism, and other psychosocial and cultural issues. For surgical trainees, there's often so much focus on technical skills, but clearly there are important non-technical attributes that go into making a good physician. So Joe, is this sort of what was going through your head when you had the idea for the piece that we submitted? In a way, yes. I was on my way home from Academic Surgical Congress in February of this year, and I was getting excited about the upcoming match day and finding out who our new interns would be. As the education fellow, I knew that I would be running the surgical intern boot camp for them come June. I was trying to boil down the essential duties, behaviors, practices of an intern into some sort of statement or opinion piece. I wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to frame it initially. And that's when you brought that idea to COSAF, right, Joe? Yeah, exactly. So I wrote a very rough draft, and then everyone at COSEF really jumped in to help frame the paper and define our specific messages for each section. I think together we made this a really interesting and passionate piece. And so ultimately, we boiled it down to three specific tips for thriving as a surgical intern. And as previously mentioned, we tried to stay away from the technical skills like learning how to do a specific surgical skill or surgical procedure, and even away from medical knowledge. So much of the existing material on how to thrive as an intern is related to those technical sk- technical skills. And we chose to focus more on the non-technical skills that sometimes get overlooked. So we ended up going with, first, own your own patient. Second, treat people like people. And third, take care of yourself. And so we'll talk about each one of these over the course of the podcast and use this as a framework to guide our discussion. And for those who would like to read the article itself, it's called Thriving as a Surgical Intern, Three Tips from the Collaboration of Surgical Education Fellows, and it's published in Annals of Surgery Open. We were really excited about all of the social media attention that the piece received, which actually placed it in the top 5% of research articles by social media sharing, according to Altmetric. So let's dive in. Tip number one, own your patients. I think we all know what it means to own our patients, but actually defining it is pretty tough. Think about that for a moment. What does patient ownership mean to you? Rebecca, how did we define it exactly? Yeah, I agree it's not easy to define. And we actually struggled a little bit with the wording of this when we're writing the paper. But ultimately, the definition that we gave was the commitment that a medical provider, both individually and as part of a team of healthcare professionals, feels and displays in relation to the provision and coordination of care for his or her patients. And so as an intern, it's so easy to feel like you're floundering, but just taking responsibility and ownership for the patients, their hospital course, their needs, that is something that interns can absolutely do. And I would argue it's also something that helps you improve your medical knowledge. For instance, you might be encouraged to look up a specific procedure or disease process because it's part of your patient's history. 
Ultimately, take accountability for patients under your care. You don't have to start intern year off by knowing how to perform complex surgery to fix someone's problems, but you should know your patient's symptoms, medical and surgical histories, exam findings, and plans. Take responsibility for communicating with patients and families. Make yourself an integral part of the team. Make your patients feel like you are their physician and advocate. As the intern, you are typically the physician on the team interacting the most with patients. You are the one the nurses will call if something concerning is happening to the patients, and you're responsible for relaying critical updates and information to your team. By better knowing your patients and their histories, you can better understand when something isn't right. Don't be afraid of being wrong. It's better to speak up if you think something is going on or if there's something you don't understand because the consequences of not doing so can be severe. I've been wrong so many times, you guys, but it's not about your pride. It's about the patient. Care to share any, Joe? Well, I remember on my first rotation as an intern asking my chief what the correct dose of Tylenol was. Oh, boy. I mean, that is so true, honestly. We've all been there. And, and what did your chief tell you? Well, he should have just quoted the Scrubs episode. You throw it at them and whatever sticks is the correct dose. <laughs> But uh, joking aside, he gave me, uh, you know, the right answer kindly and said that everybody starts in the same place, the beginning. So true. So moving to tip number two, treat people like people. I think we all remember starting kindergarten and learning the golden rule, the one we're supposed to always keep in mind no matter what. Treat others how you want to be treated. It's so easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day grind of surgical residency and talk about the appy in room 34 or that bowel obstruction from this morning. And sometimes it's okay to use this shorthand from time to time, but we have to keep in mind that behind each one of these descriptions is a person with hopes, fears, and a life outside of their disease. Yeah, and I think it's important to add that this applies not just to our patients, but to everyone around you, from the bedside nurses, to the scrub techs, to the therapists, dietitians, medical students, the list goes on and on. Just Remember to learn their names, listen to their concerns, and just always treat other people with respect. I remember the second or third week of my intern year, just as I was about to sign out to the night intern, I got a call from one of the nurses taking care of a post-operative patient who I had already checked up on and who was already doing well. And she asked me to come and evaluate him and said that he did not look right. And even though I was getting close to heading out, I trusted her and I went to see the patient. And within five minutes, his blood, the blood pressure had dropped rapidly. He became tachycardic. And it was clear that he was having a major post-operative bleed that ended up requiring a trip back to the operating room. So listening to and validating that nurse's concerns was critical in getting that patient the care he needed to save his life. Jeez. Thanks for sharing that, Ananya. In our surgery clinics, there's a small plaque on the wall. I'm not sure who put it there exactly. I'll have to go find out. But there's a quote by Maya Angelou. At the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or did. They will remember how you made them feel. I try to keep this in mind, especially in clinic, where you meet a bunch of new patients in a short amount of time. Powerful stuff. That actually reminds me of another quote, too. Um, I think it goes, everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. So be kind always. And I've seen a few variations of it, but I think it's attributed to Wendy Mass. Just remember to approach others with um, understanding and compassion, but importantly, just be kind to yourself as well. 
And I think that's an excellent segue to our tip number three, take care of yourself. So this one can get a bit heavy. Please bear with us, but this is important. Nearly 40% of surgical residents report symptoms of burnout on a weekly basis. Interns and junior residents experience burnout at higher rates than senior residents. And a 2014 national survey of clinically active surgical residents in the U.S. showed that 69% of residents um, and respondents to that survey met the criteria for burnout on at least one subscale of the Maslach burnout inventory. So if you hear nothing else in this podcast, if you have any thoughts of self-harm, please talk to someone. I promise you that someone loves you, cares about you. Please don't suffer in silence. Wow, Nanya, those numbers are really shocking. For me, it's really about looking after each other. It's cheesy to say, but it's true. We are a family, albeit dysfunctional at times, but uh, we really have to look after our own. If you see someone struggling, reach out, lend a hand. We've all had dark days. That part's normal. We just can't let them turn into dark weeks, months, or even worse. Yeah, I totally agree. Sometimes the feelings come from mistakes, either at work or in your personal life, and everyone messes up. We just have to think, what can a learning point be from this? But even more than that, just forgiving yourself as easily as you would forgive someone else. And part of caring for yourself is also relying on and helping support your co-residents. You spend so much time in the hospital setting, and you may even spend more time with your co-residents than your own family on a given week. And all three of us have formed deep friendships with several of our co-residents. And we're not saying you have to be best friends with all of your co-residents to still be able to demonstrate kindness and compassion towards them. If someone had a family crisis or a significant life event or really anything that requires someone to cover them, it's important to step up and help. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, and all of this reminds me, actually, of a book I just read to my kids. It's called The Rabbit Listened. So in the book, the, tailor, the, the character named Taylor makes a really cool castle out of blocks, but it gets knocked down. Then all of these animal, animals come in and try to make him feel better. So the chicken wants to talk about what happened, but Taylor doesn't want to talk. The bear wants to yell about it, but Taylor doesn't feel like yelling. Finally, the rabbit comes in and sits by him. The rabbit just listens, and that's exactly what Taylor needed. So great book for all the parents out there, but the, the lesson is, is really powerful too. I feel like we all know a lot of chickens who just want to talk about it. <laughs> for sure. Sometimes just listening is enough. Absolutely. Do you want to better prepare for the OR? Do you want to be more efficient and comprehensive in your studies? Use Jomi.com, the Journal of Medical Insight. Jomi is a peer-reviewed surgical video journal that offers a unique behind-the-curtain educational experience. Have an expert surgeon walk you through each case step-by-step from incision to closure with key animations and expert insight. With over 220 videos spanning 13 surgical specialties filmed at MGH, Stanford, Yale, and across the globe, Jomi.com has something for everyone. Virtually scrub in with surgical masters anywhere and anytime. Visit jomi.com and use the code BTK for 10% off your subscription. Watch and learn at jomi.com, masterclass surgical education videos. So now we thought we'd ask the people. So rather than just having a bunch of research residents preaching tips from our intern days, which were several years ago, we thought we'd ask current interns what the hot topics are around thriving as an intern. 
So to start, I have a question here from a Stanford intern. How do I deal with patients and other providers not thinking that I'm a physician based on my race and or gender? So that is such a powerful and really great question and something that many of us struggle with, especially as the fields of medicine and surgery are becoming more diverse. It's definitely frustrating. I can tell you that from firsthand experience. But remember, it's a reflection of other people's biases and not on your own abilities. So when I would meet patients, I would introduce myself by saying, Hi, I'm Dr. Anand. I'm one of the surgery resident physicians working with Dr. So-and-so to help care for you while you're here in the hospital. That way, patients knew I was a doctor, but also a member of the surgical team. And don't be afraid to call yourself doctor. You've earned that title. Um, Joe, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, bluntly, as a white male, there's not too much I can offer in terms of relevant experience here. I will say that this is a critically important issue, and as a male, I always try to raise up others on my team. So, for example, in front of patients, I try to always call my chiefs, especially the female chiefs, doctor. Try to remember that your language sets the tone. How you interact with your colleagues in the resident room shouldn't always be how you interact with them on the floors or in the trauma bay. I recently heard a story about a male intern who was seeing patients with his female chief. The chief gave the plan for the day, but the patient asked the male intern for his opinion. He simply said, you know what, I'm the intern. She is the chief resident in charge of your care. I support her and she is the best person for you to be talking with right now. I think the intern handled it perfectly. Rebecca? Yeah, I think we need more people like that, to be honest. I mean, we hear these stories, but the more people that can do it, the better I think it will be for everyone. Um, and I will say this has definitely happened to me um, too many times to count. I uh, generally always state my name as Dr. Marisi, and I try to wear my badge in a place that's easily visible. However, I will still get called Dr. Rebecca or just Rebecca. And, you know, sometimes it's because people think it's easier to pronounce maybe than my last name. And so I don't think it's always meant in the way we perceive it, but it's still frustrating nonetheless. And I think just being present and engaging with patients, nurses, staff members, and just anyone else in the hospital will really help others get to know you as the physician that you are. So our next question comes from an LSU intern and reads, now that I'm one month into residency, when should I start thinking about all of the other extracurricular activities like studying for absite, taking on research projects? And furthermore, how do I start incorporating these tasks into my daily routine. And so this question hits home for me as someone that likes to do everything and say yes to everything. I found that I was the most ready and prepared to take on new activities once I was confident in my current duties. So in this case, I tried very hard first to be a good resident, take care of my patients, be a good teammate, um, and take care of myself. And then once I felt comfortable in my new routine, that's when I started adding some other things. So specifically in terms of studying, I would try to set up my question bank around the service that I was on. So if I was doing two months of pediatric surgery, I used those months to study that material. Um, now in terms of incorporating new tasks, I think one idea would be to incorporate one new thing at a time. So by that, I mean, don't wake up on your first weekend off and think you're going to do all these new things at once, starting a research project, joining a new sports team, 
reading 10 chapters of your surgery textbook and submitting an abstract to a conference. That's just not reasonable. And um, really, I think the phrase, it's a marathon, not a sprint, is, um, is, is so true. And so just remember that you have five years or five plus years to start new things and learn new skills. Yeah, and something that's important to learn during residency is also understanding your limits. You're human, and it's okay to say no to things. We all come in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and really eager to demonstrate our interest in surgery. But interneer is difficult, it's time-consuming, and there are certain things you sort of have to incorporate in your downtime, like preparing for cases um, that you've been assigned to and studying for the ad site. So if you are considering pursuing research during your intern year, know that it will cut into your already precious limited time off. So make sure you're engaged in projects that are meaningful to you and where you also get something out of it, like a presentation or a publication. Don't fall into the trap of simply being a workhorse for other people. Yeah, I completely agree. Also, don't underestimate the time needed to recharge, whether that's being with your family, working out, making a great dinner, whatever it is. So here's an interesting question from one of the Buffalo interns. How do I find the proper authoritative voice, one that gets a message across that something needs to happen now while still being polite about it? Great question. I think you've identified the key issue here, which is your communication style changes with situational urgency. So I'll draw an analogy to Goldman's six leadership styles, which are coercive, pace setting, authoritative, affiliative, democratic, and coaching. While one leadership style will likely come most easily to you, you can learn other styles and acknowledge that each style of leadership has a purpose. So let me put this in context. I tend to be an affiliative leader. I try to promote trust, open communication, and harmony amongst teams. In crisis, affiliative leaders can lean on these relationships that they have developed with their team to solicit help. So I consider myself friends with many of our ICU nurses, for example. I take time to get to know them and foster friendships. When a crashing patient comes in, I usually don't need to raise my voice or demand things. Um, not that I would anyway. And when I say I have to get a line in this patient immediately, for example, the nurses tend to help because they trust me and I trust them. We've earned it. If I'm working with a team that I don't have that level of familiarity with, I do tend to shift to a slightly more coercive or authoritative style. Ultimately, I think you have to know which leadership or communication styles come most naturally to you, embrace them, and learn when and how to adjust as needed. No specific style is right or wrong. It's just what works for you in a given situation. So what are your thoughts, Rebecca and Ananya? Well, what you said totally resonates with me, Joe. Um, I know that I'm definitely an affiliative style leader as well. Um, but I think it, in addition to recognizing your leadership style, it's really important to get to know the people you work with. And you kind of touched upon that, Joe, um, in order to better understand their communication style. So getting to know people not only creates more trust, but also helps you recognize how they may respond positively or negatively to certain leadership styles. And also when utilizing different leadership styles, it's critical to consider the context in which you're using that style and your role in that context. You will likely need to adopt a different leadership style when a patient in your ICU is crashing and you are the chief resident responsible versus when you are the junior or mid-level resident communicating plans to the nurse for your stable patients on the breast surgery service. Also, observe other people's leadership styles and techniques. The hidden curriculum is powerful in residency. 
Pick up style techniques from senior residents and attendings who you observe communicating well and who can get things done for their patients while maintaining respect, empathy, and kindness toward all members of the care team. Yeah, when you guys were talking, I was thinking back to the first question because I feel at times that people don't listen to me with the same urgency as if I were a male resident. And so I do agree that um, getting to know the people you work with on the rotation, um, and that doesn't just include your co-residents, the nurses, the case managers, the OR staff that as the intern you'll be communicating with, all of, knowing all of those people and forming relationships is very important. And so that ability that I think we're all three talking about to form these positive relationships with others in residency, it might not come naturally to everyone. But um, again, that's just another non-technical skill that might come in handy in one of those urgent situations. And um, also, I just want to mention that there might be times, especially as an intern, when you realize that someone is not listening to your concerns. And so my advice would be to tell someone else. Uh, maybe an upper-level resident, a fellow, or even an attending, as scary as that sounds. Um, someone once told me that you won't regret calling, but you may regret not calling. So true. So another question that we all got some variation from, uh, from all of our interns um, at all of our institutions was, what are the strategies for being able to get to the OR and get involved with cases when I have so much floor work to manage? How do I work on my time management to be able to get to the OR? That is such an excellent set of questions. So many times as interns, there are services where you don't get assigned to cases, particularly services like surgical oncology, transplant, or HPB, where the cases are more complex. Um, when I was an intern, I would try to get as many orders in and consults called um, early on in the day, and then would go to the OR to write my notes and do discharges on the OR computer. And this allowed surgeons to be able to recognize me more and identify who I was. Um, and it also made it easier for them to call me over to see interesting parts of the case or even to scrub in to do certain parts of the case that were appropriate for my level. Of course, if I knew it was a busy day where I was likely to get numerous pages or phone calls, I tried not to be in the OR so I wasn't disruptive. But as you get more comfortable with the tasks of each particular service, try to do your work in the OR so you can get more opportunities. Yeah, so I'm a very routine-oriented person. And one thing that I tried to do as an intern was actually write out some pre-rounding notes the night before. And I don't mean going into charts and writing out actual information, but just taking a paper, dividing it by however many patients I was going to see the next morning, and writing key things like their names or room numbers, and then whatever chart information that I was going to collect the next day, whether that be leaving a spot for vitals, labs, overnight events, imaging, and of course, a place for all my to-do boxes. And so in the morning, I already had my notes prepped, and I could spend more time seeing the patients and writing the notes. And similarly, getting all of that stuff done early leaves you more time for the rest of the day. Um, with this method, I tended to forget less overall and just be more available. Um, but I do agree with Ananya. I also tried to um, do any uh, leftover notes or discharge summaries in the operating room. And I think just being present and interactive with your team will go a long way. And just remember, as a surgery resident, um, you're going to be trained to be a surgeon, so you'll get your time. And your program wants you to learn and become a great surgeon. So maybe one rotation you have is light, um, on OR time, but the next one might be better. 
Yeah, I think those are great tips, Nanya and Rebecca. Honestly, I'm still working on being efficient, but let me reframe this a little bit. Create a few learning goals for each rotation. As the intern, talk with your chiefs about what you want to get out of your time together. Obviously, you need to do the notes, the orders, discharges, that patient care type stuff. But if you're on trauma, tell them you really want to get more comfortable placing chest tubes or doing trachs or whatever it is. Pick something. And then, hopefully, they can help you get these opportunities. If you see a trach scheduled for tomorrow, ask your team if you can plan to double scrub if the floor and pagers are under control. I've actually had mid-level residents even offer to hold the pager for me while I helped with a case that I really wanted to participate in. The goal of going to the OR is a bit nebulous, but saying that I want to do X can help others help you. So with that, we're getting to the end of the episode. Uh, Don't forget our three tips. Own your patients, treat people like people, take care of yourself. But what do you think? Did we get it right? What would you add? Tweet your suggestions at us, at Fellows and also at Behind the Knife. And wait, do we have a website yet, guys? <laughs> We're working on it. That's a project for this year, actually. Stay tuned. What about a good catchphrase? How are people going to remember us as COSA, a.k.a. the Collaboration of Surgical Education Fellows? Go forth, be kind, don't forget to collaborate, and dominate, dominate the, the day. day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.